Welcome to a special edition of EDS at Union Now. Our conversation is entitled America's Hidden Caste System. On Wednesday, February 24th, EDS at Union hosted a virtual panel discussion that focused on Isabel Wilkerson's New York Times bestseller, Caste, The Origins of Our Discontents. Our panelists discussed the history and themes explored by the book and what Ms. Wilkerson describes as, hidden, as America's hidden caste system a rigid hierarchy of human rankings that goes beyond race, class, or other factors. Joining Dean Kelly Brown Douglas on the panel were Dr. Cheryl Townsend-Gilkes, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Professor of African American Studies and Sociology and Director of the African American Studies Program at Colby College, and the Reverend Dr. Joshua Samuel, Visiting Lecturer for Theology, Global Christianity, and Mission at Union Theological Seminary and the author of Untouchable Bodies, Resistance and Liberation, on a theology of liberation among Hindu and Christian Dalits. The conversation will be moderated by Hope Pubuke, a poet, writer, and assistant professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Pubuke was asked by NPR Books to review Caste, The Origins of Our Discontents. By linking the caste systems of America, India, and Nazi Germany, the Pulitzer Prize-winning Wilkerson, who also authored The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration, explores how the cruel logic of caste requires a bottom run for those in the middle to measure themselves against. She also writes about caste's health costs and depression and life expectancy and the effects of this hierarchy on our culture and politics. Good evening to all of you and thank you for joining us for this Episcopal Divinity School at Union panel discussion on Isabel Wilkerson's cast, The Origins of Our Discontent. I am Robin Reese, the Vice President of Communications and Marketing for Union and EDS at Union. I'm pleased to be with you, and I'm looking forward to tonight's discussion about the book's complex and multi-layered exploration of the caste system. For any of you who may be new to an EDS event, I hope it will not be your last. EDS at Union is committed not just to educating future faith leaders in doing the work of the church and being church in the world, but also in addressing issues of justice, including race, poverty, and power. Events like this one are examples of the probing exploration that happens here. This might be a good time for me to plug an event we have upcoming. It's our community read event coming up on April the 7th, where we will be discussing the book Waste one Woman's Fight Against America's Dirty Secret, with the author who will be with us, Catherine Flowers. I hope you'll come back and join us then. Now let's move on to tonight's discussion. I'm pleased to introduce our panelists to you this evening. We have the very Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas, who is the Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union and holds the Bill and Judith Moyers Chair of Theology. She's also canon theologian at the Washington National Cathedral in Washington, DC, and is theologian in residence at Trinity, Wall Street, Trinity Church Wall Street. Dean Douglas is the author of several books, including Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God. Also with us tonight is Dr. Cheryl Townsend Jilks. She's the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Professor of African-American Studies and Sociology and Director of the African-American Studies a program at Colby College in Maine. An ordained Baptist minister, Dr. Jilks is an assistant pastor for special projects at the Union Baptist Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts, as well as a sociologist whose specialties focus on African-American women 
Religion, Social Change, and the Legacy of W.E.B. Du Bois. She is currently at work on a book titled That Blessed Book, The Bible and the African-American Cultural Imagination. And rounding out our panel is the Reverend Dr. Joshua Samuel, visiting lecturer for theology, global Christianity, and mission at Union Theological Seminary and Episcopal Divinity School at Union, and the author of Untouchable Bodies, Resistance and Liberation on a Theology of Liberation Among Hindu and Christian Dalits. And now introduce our moderator, Hope Wabuki, a Ugandan American poet, essayist, and writer who wrote a wonderful review of CAST for NPR Books. She's an assistant professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and founding board member and former media and communications director for the Cambilio Center for African-American Fiction. Her forthcoming poetry collection titled The Body Family will be out next spring. Now, let me just drop in a quick note here that after the discussion with the panelists, there will be some time to take questions from those of you in the audience. We ask that you please use the Q&A function that is at the bottom of your Zoom screen to enter your questions and we'll try to get to as many as we can in the time that we have. Now I'll turn it over to our moderator, Hope. Thank you so much, Robin. Um, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you to our esteemed panelists. I am overjoyed to have this conversation with you and thank you to our audience. Uh, thank you for being here. Um, I want to begin um, by asking our panelists a question with a little bit of a lead in. To read Isabel Wilkerson is to revel in the pleasure of reading to relax into the virtuosic performance of thought and form one is about to encounter, safe and secure that the structures will not collapse beneath you. In the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist's first book, The Warmth of Other Suns, the epic story of America's great migration, Wilkerson evinced a rare ability to craft deeply insightful analysis of deeply researched evidence, both historical and contemporary, in harmonious structures of language and form. Now, in her sophomore effort, the former New York Times Chicago bureau chief does not disappoint. Cast the origins of our discontents is a masterwork of writing, a profound achievement of scholarship and research that stands also as a triumph of both visceral storytelling and cogent analysis. What is cast? According to Wilkerson, quote, Caste is the granting or withholding of respect, status, honor, attention, privileges, resources, benefit of the doubt, and human kindness to someone based on their, based on the per perceived rank or standing in the hierarchy, end quote. Racism and casteism do overlap, Wilkerson writes, noting that, quote, what some people call racism could be seen as merely one manifestation of the degree to which we have internalized the larger American caste system, end quote. Wilkerson's central thesis is that caste, while a global occurrence, achieves its most violent manifestation in the treatment of American Blacks set at the lowest level in society through historical and contemporary oppression, marginalization, and violence, all legally maintained through systems of law and order. The English in North America developed the most rigid and exclusionist form of race ideology, Wilkerson writes, quoting the anthropologists Audrey and Brian Smedley. Quote, the institution of slavery was for a quarter millennium, the conversion of human beings into currency. 
into machines who existed solely for the profit of their owners, to be worked as long as the owners desired, who had no rights over their bodies or loved ones, who could be mortgaged, bred, won in a bet, given as wedding presents, bequeathed to heirs, sold away from spouses or children to convene an owner's debts or to spite a rival or to settle an estate. They were regularly whipped, raped and branded, subjected to any whim or distemper of the people who owned them. Some were castrated or endured other tortures too grisly for these pages, tortures that the Geneva Convention would have banned as war crimes had the conventions applied to people of African descent on this soil. In recent years, we have seen racism emboldened by various political figures given platforms, and we have also seen those who work for anti-racist action demonized. For many Americans, one of the most heartbreaking things about this past year has been seeing white supremacist insurrectionists who stormed America's capital, stole sensitive documents, and killed law enforcement officers, all to be let free. While peaceful protesters protesting anti-Black violence over the summer were met with, to quote former President Trump's words, the most vicious dogs and violence, end quote. I want to begin with hearing from our esteemed panelists in their own words on their perspective of race and racism in today. What are your thoughts on these two systems of justice that we see in America that seem to be based on the race-based caste system that Wilkerson describes in Caste, the Origins of Our Discontents? What do you see in the present moment? And if you like, where do we go from here? I'll begin with Dr. the esteemed Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas. Now, how was I hoping that you would not? <laughs> Thank you, first of all, so much, uh, Hope, for being with us and moderating this and for your work and for this question. And it is an honor to be with you and to be with uh, my esteemed colleagues uh, and friends, Dr. Cheryl Townsend Jilks and Dr. Joshua Samuel. <laughs> I'll be brief uh, in this answer so uh, that we can hear from others. What we see and have seen uh, over the course of the last four years in particular with the Make America Great Again vision uh, uh, and with that which we continue to see it's nothing new. In fact, it isn't simply sort of like, I as I like to say, the genie being let back out of the bottle. We have to recognize that the, this country was built upon a white supremacist foundation, that the democracy that this country aspires to be was always a democracy defined by race. It was a racialized democracy, uh, if you will. And so the intention for this nation, it, it's this nation talked about American exceptionalism and being that city built on a hill. The intention for this nation was that it, what made it exceptional, excuse me, was the fact that it was a white nation. 
American exceptionalism was to be equated with Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism, as I have said in other places, that it gave birth to this notion of a nation where there would be freedom and justice for all, as particularly uh, expounded upon in the Declaration of Independence. From the beginning of that, even within the Declaration itself, that vision is compromised and corrupted again by race. And so what we are seeing today uh, is actually that which lies at the foundation of this country. And until we deal with that reality, that to say, as Toni Morrison has said, to say uh, American is to, uh, to talk about America is to talk about race, that race is embedded uh, within the very identity of this nation. And until we come to grips with that, we are going to continue to see the emergence of uh, the vilest forms uh, and manifestations of this nation's white supremacist foundation at war with this vision that it incidentally uh, gave birth to. But the nation is yet to decide if it's going to be that nation of its founding or if it's going to be that nation of its vision. And that's what we continue to see at, uh, at odds with one another and erupts at what I think we have seen is a 21st century version of the Civil War. And so it will continue to erupt until we come to grips with the fact that this nation is founded on a white supremacist uh, foundation. Thank you, Dr. Reverend Douglas for that wonderful opening. I'd like to turn next to our very esteemed panelist, Reverend Dr. Gilks for the next panelist to answer this question. If you could unmute yourself, Dr. Gilks. That does help. Wow, um, it's a big question. And it would help me if you would just give me a little reminder of your emphasis, because I was so busy listening to Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas, I sort of forgot my answer. Uh, thank you, Dr. Jokes. I'm asking, um, given um, the kind of historical background that uh, Wilker, Isabel Wilkerson lays out and cast the origins of our discontents, um, given the the recent um, picture that we have of white supremacist insurrection mm -hmm. going free while peaceful protesters protesting anti-Black violence are met with vicious violence. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on these seeming two systems of justice in America that seem to be based on the, the racially based caste system that uh, Wilkerson speaks of in her text? Thanks, I needed that reminder because it's, it's a big question. Uh, when on January 6th, I posted on my Facebook page, borrowing a phrase from W.E.B. Du Bois, we who are dark. And I posted very simply, we who, are, we who are dark know how dead we would be if we tried what the Trumpers just did. Um, that Af Af African-Americans like myself watch the news and we look at incidents and there are certain incidents and you just look at, you watch the event and you say, wow, if they were black, they'd be dead. And so there's a recognition you grow up with in terms of the difference it makes being black or white in America. As we watched, as I watched P. 
pieces of the hearings that are going on about the security of the um, Capitol, where they weren't sure, you know, they didn't know, they didn't think that this was going to be a problem. And I sat there and said, oh, you didn't think they were dangerous because they were white, you know, and, and, and I have a very cynical approach to that. But let's go back because I have a paper in progress uh, that looks at the politics of hate that have, and I call it the politics of hate, that gave rise to um, the success of um, this immediate past president. When he was running, a number of us who were African-American watched the first couple of rallies and said, he can do this. Why did I say he could do this? W.E.B. Du Bois wrote a book titled Black Reconstruction in America. And in that book, he has a, has a chapter titled The Propaganda of History. And he pointed out that we talk about the South, the pre-Civil War South, as if there were two groups of people and only two groups of people. Those of us who were enslaved and my my great-grandmother, the woman who raised my mother, was born in slavery, and those who owned slaves. And we ignore the fact that the majority of white people in the South did not own slaves. And we don't really ask questions about their descendants. We look at pictures of, there's a book titled Without Sanctuary, which has the pictures, the postcards, and the pictures that were taken at lynchings with the jubilant crowds of white people underneath the black bodies that have been um, have been hung, burned, shot, or all of the above. Um, pictures that were taken that people commercialized and sent out to one another. And no one asks, who's, where are their children? Who are their children? Uh, there's a new book out titled The Klansman and the Family. And the author of that book sat down with a demographer and discovered that if we take seriously how large the movement of the Ku Klux Klan was in the 1920s, there are 137 million descendants from the Klan currently in this nation. What the previous president did was he organized a liberation movement for that population and they came forth and voted for him. And I sat there two weeks before the election and said to a colleague, he said, what do you think of all of this? I said, I have the first sentence of my op-ed if Mrs. Clinton wins. And he was like, if she wins? I said, yes, if she wins. My fear was that like in 1876, when people reacted to and responded to the liberation of Black Americans from slavery with uh, a politics of hate, that this politics of hate could easily put the election into the House of Representatives and it would be a mess. I said, this man has money. All you need are sophisticated polling operations to figure out which counties you need to win big in which states to win the electoral vote. 
because every line in his speeches appealed to the various hatreds that have to do with race in America. Even the hatred of the Clintons, which was also, uh, one scholar has pointed to that as a substantial portion. And I use Gary Allen Fine's theory of tiny publics. But even the hatred of the Clintons goes back to Clinton's argument that race was a deep concern to him when he was running for president. And I remember sitting there watching that interview on CBS and I said, man, you just put a big target on your back. That is how racialized this nation is. And I use Eduardo Benia Silva's um, phrase, racialized social system, to get at the totality of this thing called racism in his classic article titled Rethinking Racism. Yes, we move back and forth and caste becomes a way of trying to get at the totalization of the society and to sort of get around the um, certain kinds of theoretical scripts that people deal with. But what is happening right now is nothing but a rearticulation and a continuation of the reality of the, um, the dynamics that have made this society. And, and, and so what's happening today is very much deeply rooted in history. And we need the thick description of how that history has gotten us to that spot to understand it. And, I, and I, I'm sorry to sound so cynical, but I've been that way for a very long time. I think from the time when I had to ask my mother, mommy, what's this word? Seg and she had to try to explain it to me in Cambridge, Massachusetts, having no idea what the South was. And what's this de jure thing? You know, you have to sound the words out as a little kid. And I remember after she explained it to me, I won't tell you how she explained it. And I remember sitting back and going, and I was a little kid. Um, what will they think of next? And I think that's why I'm a sociologist to figure out what will they think of next. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Dr. Jilks, for that very insightful um, teaching that you just gave us. I'd like to turn to our, our third panelist to, to take on this question, the Reverend Dr. Samuel. Thanks. Thanks, Hope. Uh, I come to this question as an Asian American, uh, as you can imagine, as a South Asian immigrant living in the United States, uh, not for long. Uh, and, I, and I find it very interesting it, to see that in some sense, what we see today, the racism that we see today is, uh, is, uh, is a repetition. It, it is uh, a representation of what happened or what has been going on for the last 400, 500 years. And, and it's, it's nothing new. And in some sense, I, I remember uh, four years ago when, when all this, uh, you know, when, when Trump was elected and, and, and people were having all these conversations and certainly there was so much of tumult. I also remember being a student at Union then, uh, there were also people who said, there's nothing surprising about this. It's, it's just, this is, this is the way things have been for long. It's only now some people are beginning to realize. So, uh, so that's there, but I think what, what, is different perhaps about this context, about the present context is that, uh, is the presence of immigrants, I think. By immigrants, I mean, you know, from Asia, South Asia uh, in particular. And, and I see this in two ways. One, 
I see the Asian American community as a marginalized community, and we know very well, uh, especially with the with the pandemic, uh, how Asian Americans have been treated, how they have been vilified, and 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 that's that's an ongoing struggle, uh, and something that I've experienced personally as a South Asian uh, living in the United States. But what is also very fascinating for me is to see how these same communities, these middle castes, as uh, Wilkers, Wilkerson puts it, uh, are also the ones who are actually holding up this structure, holding up this system of racism in, in, in many ways, uh, in the sense that they themselves become, not they are not just victims, but they could also become the ones who, who, who can, uh, who, who in, in, in internalize racism in some sense and reproduce it. And, and, and this actually happens, I guess, I guess in two ways. One is uh, the, the, uh, the ways in which there is a desire to be white among Asian American communities, especially among South Asian communities that I'm close with, uh, that I work closely with. Uh, this tendency to be white or this tendency to glorify whiteness. And this actually has a long history especially in South Asia, especially in India. Uh, you know, going back to the ancient religious texts, you see how white is glorified, how white is seen as pure, and, and the dark people and the dark and the dark skinned people are seen as demons and, and monsters. And so this is this is not something new for us in, in a way. Uh, so this desire to be white is there, but also and 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 connected to that is also this 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 sense of anti-blackness that is so prevalent. Uh, and this actually came out uh, pretty uh, visibly uh, during the last four years. Uh, when, I, when I have conversations with you know, other South Asians and other Indians, uh, it's very interesting to see how they go, how much they struggle to, to justify what the, 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 the previous president did, you know, what, whatever, whatever things that he did, whatever things that he said. It's just fascinating to see that he didn't say anything wrong. He didn't. He, he was right, and 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 it's so hard even to have a conversation or even to have a uh, have any kind of reasoning with them because I, there is this deep rooted sense of anti-blackness that that has been there. So what I'm trying to say is that in, in some sense, uh, while racism acts out uh, between white communities and black communities uh, the strongest, or it's it's more conspicuous. I feel, and that, that's where I think it, it, is, it, is, it is interesting to see the system as actually as a caste system, because that's the way caste actually su su succeeds. That's the way it sustains itself, not, not in terms of polarities, but by those intermediate communities that continue to uh, you know, reproduce the, the hierarchical system. So uh, this is something that, that, I, that I find very fascinating uh, from my position as, a, as an Asian American. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Dr. Samuel, for that excellence and astute um, um, word, those words you just gave us. Um, I want to uh, ask a, separate, a second question now. Um, in her text, Wilkerson talks about examples of medical racism and how that relates to caste. One of the most poignant examples Wilkerson describes is the violence done by Dr. J. Marion Sims, lauded as the founder of American gynecology on the bodies of black women and children. Quote, he came to his discoveries by acquiring enslaved women in Alabama and conducting savage surgeries that often ended in disfigurement or death. He refused to administer anesthesia, 
saying vaginal surgery on them was not painful enough to justify the trouble. End quote. Wilkerson says Sims would invite leading men into town and apprentices to see for themselves. He later wrote, quote, I saw everything as no man has seen before. Medical experiments were also carried out on black men and black children. Wilkerson notes uh, the esteemed Harriet Washington's research in medical apartheid in which a plantation doctor made incisions into a black baby's head to test the theory for curing seizures with cobbler's tools and the point of a crooked awl, again, without anesthesia. The horror is lesion. We can look at, at centuries of evidence of medical racism, the Tuskegee, um, you know, Henrietta Lacks, again, the horror is legion. I was hoping that you could talk about, a bit about medical racism and how that relates to caste and racism um, and the history and effect of it, especially on the present day. Um, let's go to um, the esteemed Reverend uh, Dr. Jilks for our first answer, and then we'll go to the esteemed Reverend Dr. Samuel, and then the esteemed Reverend Dr. Douglas. Good evening again. This is, oh, you know, I, as soon as you mentioned Marion Sims, I, I just put my head in my hand. I, Harriet Washington's book, a medical apartheid is one of the great contributions that I recommend to everyone that this is this is something that is just absolutely full of material, not only what was done to black bodies, but what was done with black bodies. The whole problem of the night doctors, the ways in which um African-American graveyards were raided for freshly buried bodies that were shipped to places, including Boston. There's an um, um, author by the name of Tess Gerritsen who used some of that historical material to write one of her novels that focused in on the early days of um, some of our esteemed Boston hospitals. I won't name them because of this public situation, but, um, this, this is a reality. It's also the way in which African-Americans are dismissed and shamed when they are, uh, when they engage the, um, the medical system. I, occasionally I watch on TLC, there's a, um, there's a show that deals with emergency ward doctors and what they're going through. And what I, as a sociologist who um, I teach courses, I teach a course called Race, Ethnicity, and Society. And so I try to get the historical narrative built in at the same time that I'm exposing students to the sociological theories, many of which tend to be ahistorical, but trying to get them to understand how on the one hand, we have this foundation, the role of slavery in shaping the society, uh, and then how that has an impact on everybody else who comes here. And as I say to my students, I say whether your um, bloodlines go back 35 generations or whether just 35 nanoseconds, the institution of slavery has had an impact on everyone. It, it may have benefited people by creating this economic engine that people can move into midstream, or it, it, it has an impact because of the way in which other peoples of color are perceived and treated. 
uh, the way in which, for instance, uh, Chinese immigrants were treated when they started coming here in the 19th century. Um, the lack of the, the inability to become citizens and then states being able to pass alien, what they called alien land acts. So you couldn't own land. And in an agrarian society, not being able to own land means the only thing you can do is work for people who own land. Um, this kind of thing, the largest mass lynching in the United States, in Idaho, of Chinese immigrants. But what happens is the technologies of oppression get utilized and extended to other peoples. And, and this is the same thing with medical apartheid. So going back to wh why I watch the, the um, emergency ward shows, number one, I'm shocked at what privileged white people can get away with in terms of demanding services and accommodations, service uh, demands that would have brought security. You know, I sit there and go, if the person was black, they would call security and they'd be thrown out of the hospital. And all we have to do is read Root and the New York Times and other publications to see where African-Americans making certain demands get thrown out of the hospitals. And when we find out who is dying of COVID, we find out it's their third visit to the hospital. We find out that things that are normed on white people don't measure us the same way. Um, for instance, just the little oximeters that... Um, that they have. So when, um, when, when people are being cared for, you have to ask the doctor, did you measure their oxygen level another way besides these oximeters that don't um, really measure um, Black people? And then what's going to happen if I say this to the doctor, will he get huffy and dismissive? Or will this person take seriously what is said? So just trying to um, not be treated like trash. And I, I use that phrase treated like trash because one of the women that I interviewed for um, the, my community leadership, very prominent community leader, talked about how she felt like, and it was getting towards the end of her life, that she was being treated like trash. And this was a privileged person. Uh, and so, so these are the kinds of things that, um, that, that happen, but they've grown. The other thing that we need to pay attention to, and I don't think people are paying that much attention because they're very subtle ways in which the stratification that is taking place because of the post-1965 immigration as um, when, when you look to see who, who's doing the yo person work of public health as opposed to the work of the most lucrative specialties that are not as, visu as visible on television. It is our brown brothers and sisters, very often from South Asia, or our black brothers and sisters who are doctors from Africa. We, we, we keep forgetting that this new immigration, this post-1965 immigration is one is a professional. Nobody's talking about the professionals, but they're moving into a heavily stratified professional system. And so there's so many pieces of the society to look at. And if you just look at healthcare, if you just look at medicine, you can see the stratification. I, I don't mean to go on for this long, but um, the, the sociologist in me never turns off. I had an incident. I hadn't been in the hospital since 1969. And this past summer, I ended up in the hospital for nine days. And it was like doing field work. And as I moved from place to place, I got to see where I didn't see anybody of color. 
Then I got to see darker white people. And then I got to see people of color. And I finally, with my sort of fourth um, station on the way out the door, my last room, I actually saw people, workers who were actually black. And remember, I live in Maine. So I was able to sort of see the hierarchy, but it was a color hierarchy as well as a racial hierarchy. And it was a hierarchy among skilled professionals. It was amazing. So um, this is part of the impact. And we have to understand that 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 foundational history that started in 1619 has had an impact on everything after it. It is not only the anti-Blackness, but you want to avoid being seen as Black. Thank you, the Reverend Dr. Jokes. I just love listening to you speak. Your students are, are so lucky. Um, next, we go to the Reverend Dr. Samuel. Thank you. Thanks, Hope, and thanks, uh, Dr. Jukes, for the, uh, for the uh, very uh, helpful response. Uh, I, I think my response is, would, would be brief. Uh, I, I guess, uh, I mean, basically because I think uh, Dr. Jukes has covered, you know, uh, you know, much of uh, what's important. Uh, but I think uh, what, what I what I uh, feel as as uh, as a Dalit. Uh, you know, from South Asia, is that this uh, tendency to treat some bodies as expendable uh, is 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 a is a very is a very fascinating phenomenon that you you can almost recognize. Uh, you know, when 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 I when I when when, when Dalits or you know uh, uh, especially Dalits when they when they come to the U.S., uh, it's it's not difficult for us to realize or difficult to recognize what's actually going on here, how certain bodies. Uh, are, uh, and certain lives are, are seen as uh, well uh, are, are easily expendable and something that that that, that are less valuable. Uh, uh, going back to India, uh, when when the uh, when the pandemic act started, you know, last um, it didn't start, but rather uh, started spreading in India uh, last March. Uh, one of the worst affected were the uh, where the the uh, the laborers and immigrants, immigrant workers, and most, most of them being Dalits, uh, simply because they did not have health care and simply because uh, the, the, the state did not care about them. Uh, th there was a sudden call for lockdown and then they were just left stranded with, with absolutely no help, with absolutely no support system, with no medical facilities, nothing, not, not even transportation, actually. Uh, I don't know, maybe some of you would have seen on the news some of them actually walked uh, hundreds of miles, even thousands of miles to get back to their homes simply because they, there was no way of getting back home and there was no way they could live on in the cities where they had come to work. So uh, it's, 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 it's an ongoing phenomenon uh, how uh, you know, black and brown bodies and, and those bodies that are considered to be marginalized uh, are are deemed as in, uh, are deemed as less valuable than the others. Uh, I, I think I'll stop there and I'll let uh, Dr. Kelly Douglas uh, say more. Thank you, thank you, Reverend Dr. Samuel, for those insightful words. Um, the very Reverend Dr. Douglas. Uh, thank you, and 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 I will be brief. And I I, I want to tag back just uh, very briefly to something that Dr. Samuel said uh, in his first response in terms of uh, 
uh, Dalits is what, uh, or, or South Asian uh, persons is what uh, Isabel Wilkerson may call the middle caste. Uh, but his response indeed uh, reifies or reaffirms this whole caste system that she's trying to, uh, that she talks about in terms of race, because what Dr. Samuel suggests is no one wants to be a part of the bottom caste, right? And so that that's right, and that bottom caste uh, are Black people. And so so that even as you get immigrants who are not white, uh, duh, but they are who, who's going to identify with the bottom caste and say, I want to be like them. And so, so the desire is to move uh, so that you aren't identified with that caste. And I think that's one uh, thing that Wilkerson does very well uh, in, in this text in, in that regard. And it's, we often, when we were growing up, would hear the, uh, uh, joke that, you know, the poorest white person, and Wilkerson talks about this, you know, the poorest, most down and out white person, at least they have one thing they can say, at least I ain't black. Uh, the, and that's the caste system. Uh, and so that's, I, I think, I just want to affirm sort of that complexity that uh, uh, Dr. Samuels was speaking of. In terms, of course, science and the medical field, well, they reify that caste system, right? And so what we find, and I can just say this quickly, is that the caste system talks about essential bodies, but not essential human beings, right? And so when we talk about black people in the caste system, initially we became essential bodies, essential laboring bodies, essential bodies of knowledge. That is, we our bodies were used as experiments uh, for knowledge to be gained so that white life could be enhanced because the medical knowledge that was gained was never going to be to our benefit. Uh, so we're essential bodies today. You know, we won't talk about them as essential bodies. What do we do today? We call them essential workers. Uh, so they're essential workers, but they are not essential human beings. And how do we know that? Because the essential workers aren't getting access to the vaccination. Uh, uh, and so it's not, yes, there is this hyper uh, sort of vigilance or sensitivity to the fact that we have been used as essential bodies in, in medical experiments, as you uh, so uh, laid out so well, that there's this sort of vaccine hesitancy, but that vaccine hesitancy is overwhelmed by lack of vaccine access. And so, and that's because we are not seen as essential human beings. That's the history. And the way in which this continues to manifest itself in our medical field, when you talk about uh, medical apartheid, is the very ways in which Dr. Jilks spoke to and what happens when Black people, one, don't have access to uh, medical care, and then you go in and nobody believes you. Uh, the, you know it, You know how long it takes you to say when the uh, dentist is drilling in your tooth, that hurts and they just don't believe you. We also know they don't believe black people because we can take all this pain. We also know that black women have a higher uh, mortality rate, sort of birth mortality, giving birth, because they don't believe. And I have a, a couple of friends, one who died because the doctor didn't believe her when she said she was having trouble uh, after uh, giving birth, and she literally uh, died. And so these are the things that still impact us. And finally, that we don't, we 
while we are experimenting on at the same time, we are not seen as uh, normative human beings or human beings for which uh, they care enough about to do some of the research uh, so that would suggest better ways of treating um, uh, us medically. So for instance, you know, black men had a higher rate of prostate cancer. Well, that's because the norm for how they were measuring the uh, whether or not one needed to be concerned with prostate cancer, it was a norm that did not, uh, was not effective on uh, black men. So they had to redo the norm. Uh, so these are the kind of things, these are the 21st century ways in which medical apartheid, if you will, continues to manifest itself. And what we have to always understand is that the caste system is a system that indeed suggests that certain people are not essential humans, but they are essential to the caste system surviving. And they become essential to the caste system surviving either as bodies or as workers and and we see that manifest in different ways but not as humans the bottom caste are never essential human beings thank you thank you reverend dr douglas i can't believe we're almost out of time your brilliant answers are just wonderful um so i'm going to combine two questions into one and and close and move on to the question and answer. Um, in Wilkerson's book, she her argument is based on an exploration of what she names the most the three most resonant caste systems in history, the Indian caste system, the Nazi caste system, and the American caste, caste system, which the Nazis researched when creating their own. Um, uh, the Nazis, however, balked at replicating some of the most horrific acts of American racism towards Blacks. Herbert Keir was one of several Nazi researchers who thought American law went overboard, Wilkerson writes, while others, like Hans F.K. Gunther, thought the American laws so outrageous as to be untrue. These are Nazis, horrific, terrible, horrific, um, saying that the American laws towards anti, um, creating anti-Blackness and the caste system are so horrific as to be untrue. However, and so here my question is two parts. Um, what's very interesting is that in this book one, this book that supposes to set itself up as a seminal book on ca the caste system, there is a glaring absence of Africa. So my first question to you is what does that mean that Wilkerson talks about Nazis, India, and America, but forgets South Africa, forgets apartheid, and we have the kind of ethnic, um, we have, we know that African indigenous societies had a caste system that then had a European colonizing caste system laid over it when the colonizers came to Africa. Um, and that exists. So my first part of my question is, what do you make of that absence? The second part of my question is, at times, Wilkerson um, seems to argue not for an eradication of the caste system, but for simply for people to be able to move into whatever caste system they want to. Uh, she writes, the great tragedy among humans is often that people have been assigned to or seen as qualified for alpha positions as CEOs, quarterbacks, coaches, directors of films, presidents or colleges or countries, not necessarily on the basis of innate leadership traits, but historically on the basis of having been born with a dominant caste or gender. And she uses the example of, um, of wolves needing to have a scapegoat, the fact that the scapegoat is needed. 
Um, and I would argue that rather than saying that we need to have this caste system, perhaps it's about eradicating the caste system. But Wilkerson doesn't go there. So again, to recap, my two-part question is looking at perhaps areas in Wilkerson's argument that we can trouble a bit. What do you make of the glaring absence of Africa? And what do you make, and how that relates to the caste system argument? And what do you make of this kind of move in the text to not argue for the eradication of caste, but to simply argue that people should be able to hop into whatever caste system they want and that the caste system is necessary, that the scapegoat is necessary, as Wilkerson posits in her text. Let's go to Dr. Samuels first, and then the Reverend Dr. Douglas, and let's end with the Reverend Dr. Jokes. Oh, thanks, Hope. Thank you. Uh, that, that's an excellent question. Uh, uh, the, the absence of South Africa, uh, or Africa in general, uh, in this whole conversation is something that's, that's disturbing. I, I, think, I think I'll let the other two panelists say more on that. Uh, uh, but, but that's something that was something that was nagging me, I, I should confess, as I was reading it, especially South Africa. Uh, and uh, not, not, that, not that I have any problems with comparisons with with the German caste system or the Nazi caste system, uh, except that it, 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 it see it as successful in the negative sense as it was, uh, it does not necessarily, I think, capture what caste system really is, which I think we would, we would find, uh, we would find a better example in South Africa, uh, perhaps. Uh, so that's something, uh, I think I'll, I'll just leave it there. But uh, the second part of the question, I think that's definitely one thing that was really uh, bugging me the whole time. Uh, the fact that, that she, even as she makes this brilliant comparison, comparative analysis of these three caste systems uh, across the globe. Uh, and, and let me also note that this is actually important because for me as a Dalit theologian, as a Dalit scholar, I think that these kind of solidarities, these kind of comparative studies are important. Because uh, one of the first things that, that really excited me about this book was the fact that the possible solidarity building, network building that can actually come from this. Not that it's not happening, but that it shows, it, it shows you know, more uh, ways of doing it, you know, better ways of doing it. But coming back, I think the, the, the problem with, with this book, as you rightly said, is that she is some sense caught up in this functional uh, uh, idea of caste system uh, in the sense that uh, e even though she, she also recognizes obviously that it's more than one's occupation, uh, which occupation is just one of the pillars of the caste system. But, uh, but later on, as she moves towards the end of the book, I, I feel that she's more about, uh, she's, uh, and I, I don't know, I could be wrong, but uh, this is just me thinking aloud uh, and something that I felt, I, I thought when I, as I was reading the book, is perhaps the, this whole idea of uh, whether she, she is also caught up in this idea of, uh, you know, or uh, she's under the influence of capitalism. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> thank you. So I was not the only one. Uh, that really upset me. I mean, because uh, that, that, that just seemed to be, you know, somewhere there. And, and I, couldn't, I couldn't help being disturbed by it. Because... Because, uh, and, and I, I also felt at times that she could have engaged more with the Indian caste system. Uh, she could have dealt uh, more. I, I'm sure she has done her research. I, I, I have no doubts about that. But I think if she had read more of, let's say, Ambedkar, perhaps, you know, like 
For example, Ambedkar wrote categorically, he stated that we need to annihilate caste. We need to destroy caste, uh, which, is, which is one of the differences that he had with somebody like Gandhi, uh, you know, because Gandhi was all the time trying to reform caste. And all the towards his life, he did change his stance a little bit. But for, for the most part of his life, he was trying to redeem caste, redeem, uh, you know, try to convince the dominant caste people that they need to repent for their sins, that they, they have this inherent goodness within them to, uh, you know, to, to show compassion towards the untouchables and things like that. But Ambedkar was more practical in some sense. He said, like, this won't work. We need to destroy the system. So uh, that's something that was, that was definitely a bother for me. And I, and I think one of the reasons is perhaps her maybe a better engagement with the Indian caste system and perhaps with the South African system of apartheid too. I think that would have definitely enhanced. Uh, that's just my opinion. But definitely the, the influence of capitalism. I think that keeps showing up, uh, uh, especially towards the end of the book, I felt. Uh, I'll stop there. I will just affirm <laughs> that now. I'm going to let the first part of your question go to Dr. Jilks, who I saw excited to answer the question about uh, Africa. So I'm I'm going to uh, leave that and just affirm very quickly. I think uh, hope you're on to something here because how do you talk about caste and particularly? cast in this country and not talk deeply about capitalism and the way in which capitalism uh, uh, really reifies, helps to reify a racialized caste system. These things go together. And in some respects, we began to get a middle class, middle caste uh, analysis of caste. And, uh, and, you know, so don't be afraid, I think, uh, uh, Dr. Samuel, to critique that because some of her examples sort of left me mm, uh, the very kind of middle, ca middle class uh, examples of the way in which caste uh, actually acts itself out. Yes, I think we have to talk about caste because it gives you this more uh, holistic perspective, but we cannot talk about the issue of, of race without talking about uh, classism, and we cannot eradicate, I mean, uh, capitalism, which is classism, and we cannot eradicate caste if we aren't talking about capitalism, and that wasn't critiqued uh, in, 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 in this book, and it was barely mentioned uh, the, the, the notion of class. So I do think that that's uh, a weakness. And that's why you get the kind of not only colorism as uh, we talk about within the African-American community, but you get class functioning. And so you get sort of this sort of intra-caste, uh, if you will, for lack of a better way of saying it. The uh, other, I, now I've, uh, oh, the only other thing I was going to point out, uh, which is an affirmation, and then I'll uh, shut up, is it what I had forgotten uh, about the way in which the Nazis rejected and thought no one can get away <laughs> with doing what they claim to be doing in uh, America to black people. We can't bring that over here. Isn't that just if you get nothing else, don't read anything else in that book. Read that chapter on Nazism. And that gives you this insight into how uh, depraved, really, uh, 
our system of racialized caste is that even the Nazis said, who can get away with what they're doing over there? Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Reverend Douglas and Dr. Reverend Samuels. Dr. Reverend Jokes, you have the last word on this for us. Okay. I will try to be brief, but it's, it's difficult. Uh, I actually used the book in my course in the fall. And the uh, and I wh while you were talking, I went and grabbed this wonderful book that I'm using right now. I'm, I'm teaching a course on the sociology of slavery and slave communities in the United States. And there is this book by Edward Baptist called The Half Has Never Been Told, Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism. Part and, and if you noticed back at the beginning, I used Eduardo Benia Silva's phrase, racialized social system, because we're talking about a stratified political economy that is thoroughly built on the racialized foundation of slavery. As W.E.B. Du Bois points out, if it were not for the labor, that, that wonderful essay of his, uh, of the sorrow songs, this country, how came it yours? Before the pilgrims landed, we were here. And then he talks about the three gifts. And one of the political economic points that he makes is that African labor, and it wasn't just the labor, it was also the uh, cultural and material resources of the Africans, but, 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 but they cut 250 years off the material development time of this nation. The other thing, and I see my reading of Wilkerson wasn't so much about um, what, how do we abolish caste. I, she was just trying to, ex I, I just saw it as description and explanation. I didn't see it as um, read it. And, and that's the, one of the weird weirdnesses of sociologists. But what the Nazis were complaining about was the way in which we defined race in America. And we keep forgetting about that. Unlike any other slave nation in the new world, the United States defined race not by appearance, but by ancestry. And violence and law basically enforced that system. So you had, and, and Horton makes this point in a, in a number of ways, you could move from state to state and you could move from one state to another and technically not legally be black. But the fact that in order to enforce Jim Crow, you had to have people have birth certificates. These are like the Limpesia documents that um, were part of the um, Inquisition in order, you know, when Christian anti-Judaism reached its points in, in the Inquisition. And by the way, in order to talk about race in America, you also have to talk about Protestantism. You also have to talk about religion. They're very much intercalated in ways they are not so intercalated in Germany, but are intercalated in the thinking of the Nationalist Party, the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa. Um, yeah, she could have talked about South Africa, but South Africa borrowed both from the Nazis and from the United States. So by talking about the United States and the Nazis, she's already opened the door for somebody to come and write a follow up to that, um, to her analysis and looking at South Africa, especially the way in which occupations would be blackened if they ran out of white workers and it was illegal for white workers to sort of be beneath um, black workers, et cetera. 
But we need to remember that in the United States, it was by ancestry, not by appearance. So much so, and I use this example repeatedly. And uh, when Colin Powell went to buy a hamburger out in Georgia, the wait, the wait person, the waitress came to his car, and you know how light Colin Powell is, but he's not—he's not light enough to pass, and he knows that, and he says so. He—he's very upfront about it in his uh, in his autobiography. He, the woman said to him. Tell me you're Puerto Rican. Tell me you're somebody else. Tell me you're not one of them and I can serve you. The way in which the United States defined race in Louisiana until they changed the law in the, in the 1970s, you 164th black, you were black. Alabama went even farther. It said without reference whatsoever. And I highly recommend Pauli Murray, the Reverend Dr. Pauli Murray, um, her book, States Laws on Race and Color, that compiles everything in the lower 48 as of 1950, right? Um, Alabama says without limit, without limit. And, and now that, you know, Skip Gates with his Tuesday night show, Who Do You Think You Are, is sticking pins in all of this. I mean, last night, Clint Back, Black and Roseanne Cash discovered that they were Black. Megan McCain is good to 1% Senegalese, okay? Uh, people are finding this out that technically if the folks hadn't passed at some point in their family history, they would be in trouble too. And it's not how you appear, it is ancestry. And, uh, and the United States was totally distinct in this matter, totally distinct. Even South Africa, if 10 white people testified you were white, no matter how dark you were, you were white. So, um, so we got to understand, and I think one of the problems, and maybe Wilkerson could have had some big footnotes, but she wasn't writing to talk to academics. She was writing to talk to um, the larger community. And so the issue, and this is, and I shouldn't go on so long, but when she tells the story of Allison Davis working on the project with William Lloyd Warner, she is also telling, without telling you, the origins of the way in which American sociology defined class as socioeconomic status. And that came out of the William Lloyd Warner studies. So there was this combination. And in order to make sense of it within that larger project of William Lloyd Warner, the Allison Davis and his wife um, talk about caste. So there's a lot. The book could easily be three times the size that it is. It would be totally unreadable and nobody would pay attention to it. And we wouldn't be having this conversation. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Reverend Jokes. Thank you, Dr. Reverend Douglas. And thank you, Dr. Reverend Samuel. This has been absolutely amazing. We have time to take a couple of questions from the Q&A. The first one being, um, in India, one of Wilkerson's references for caste, religion, caste, and colorism are intertwined. How do you see um, colorism, religion, and race uh, affecting caste in America? Um, I'll open it up since it's the Q&A, so whoever would like to dive in can dive in first, and then I think we have time for one uh, more question before we close. I'll jump in. <laughs> 
we we talk about colorism usually when we're when um, Alice Walker gave us the term, she was talking about the internal dynamics of African Americans, where you have this hierarchy of um, the old. what was it? The it, um, if you're white, you're all right. If you're brown, if you're yellow, you're mellow. If you're brown, stick around. But if you're black, get back, get back, get back. The whole uh, um, and we keep talking about. I I call it the myth of the number two brown bag because I've never known anybody. Although I I've listened to the sort of over injuries of colorism from the stories that my my father particularly told. So I know it's very real, but I use a an advertisement from a sale of people who were enslaved from 1832 in my classroom. And I have my students sit down and talk to each other and say, what do you see? And people were marketed by their color as well as by their skills. So even the roots of this thing we call colorism is tied to this institution of slavery. But the other piece, and it is so important, religion, religion. People needed an ideology to explain why they could misuse and abuse. When Columbus landed, They read a statement to the indigenous peoples. And if they didn't respond and and, and embrace Jesus, they could do whatever they wanted to them. There's There's an aspect of Christianity that dismisses people's humanity if they're not human. And Protestantism took that to a whole nother level. And so we need to understand that, yes, colorism is real. And religion, and one of the crit- criticisms of Oliver Cromwell Cox, his 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 criticism of caste and um, Allison Davis's work was that using something from India is using a society that has a huge religious system reinforcing it, but we don't talk about how religion in America reinforced the system and how intercalated religion and race really are. So, so I'll stop there. I do go on. Thank you, Dr. Jokes. That was fascinating. Would any of the other two panelists like to speak on this question of how religion, colorism, and race um, affect the American caste system? Yeah, and I think Dr. Jokes really covered it in broad strokes. We cannot talk about race in America and, and, and slavery in America uh, and the black body in America without talking about the way in which religion served as the discourse to provide it with sacred legitimation. One of the things that we know is that these systems of oppression cannot simply work uh, by coercive means, that there has to be ways in which we legitimate them so it appears that the way things are is the way they're supposed to be. And so it is not an accident that 
scientific racism and religious racism emerged at the same time and they interacted with one another. That's not an accident. And so, because if you, if science supports something and religion supports something, well, there you go, right? You have scientific truth and then you have sacred truth. So what happened, what Protestantism did, what religion, particularly evangelical Protestantism, pure, uh, evangelical Puritan Protestant, it cast, uh, C-A-S-T, it cast our racialized caste system into the cosmos, right? And so it said that this is the way uh, God, what we're doing here is really mimicking the way in which uh, God wanted things to be and then developed uh, subsidiary le legitimations for that. We have to understand that embedded within the Bible itself is what I, what I like to call precursors to anti-Blackness, right? Uh, but it's embedded there and so the, the, we can't get into all the details now, but yes, religion is key and it continues to function in this country. And you saw it during this Make America Great Again uh, emergence and development. And Dr. Jilks' right to be Christian was to be accepted as a human being. And it was just so happened to folks that weren't Christian were the folks that weren't race white. And to uh, and and so that religion, uh, Christianity, oh, it is so in, uh, uh, complicit uh, in this whole thing. So yes, and then the last thing I'll say about colorism is the way in which we know we have to own even in the African-American tradition and the way in which uh, colorism functioned in our churches. And so uh, you couldn't, if you didn't pass the paper bag test, I don't know who did, you couldn't get into certain certain churches uh, to, or certain organizations. This is a carryover, howsoever, of a of colorism that began in slavery uh, uh, and that, that Christianity legitimated. So I'll stop there, but it plays such a significant role and we have to, one of the things we have to do in institutions like ours and uh, in seminary training is interrogate the way in which religion and Christianity has suborned and been complicit in matters of caste and especially has provided sacred legitimation for white supremacy and anti-blackness in this country. And I'll just, that's my little tweak to uh, what Dr. Jilk says. Yes, it was about uh, inheritance and blood, but there was also a strong narrative of anti-blackness that also merged so that uh, we know now, and no, nobody knows what's in your blood, but they know what you look like. And that's what uh, causes people to have instinctive responses to the black body. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Dr. Douglas. Wow. Um, so Dr. Reverend Samuels, we hear from you next on this, this audience question, which was a reminder. The question was in India, um, one of Wilkinson's primary references for her argument in caste, religion, um, race, and colorism are intertwined. Um, can you speak on that? And can you speak how that is different or the same to how you see these aspects of colorism, religion, and race operating in the caste system in America? Uh well, uh, I think after Dr. Kelly Douglas and Dr. Jones have spoken, I'm so mesmerized that I'm uh, trying to collect my thoughts. Uh, um, uh, I, 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 I think in the Indian caste system, it's it's pretty obvious. Uh, yeah, as we know, you know, it, it's it's uh, it, it is uh, 
it is supposedly based on the in the ancient Hindu text, Sanskrit text, especially. Uh, although there are a lot of Indians, Hindu scholars who would argue that uh, that what is actually mentioned in these scriptures is not does not necessarily speak about the caste system as it is practiced today. So there are there are uh, obviously uh, you know gaps there, and 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 we also know that uh, the caste system as we see to see today see it today actually evolved uh, during the colonial uh, period. Uh, so uh, the British colonialism had a big role to play in consolidating the caste system as we see it today. So and and possibly also transferring some of that across the globe. So so th there is there's a lot going on over there. Uh, uh, as far as colorism is concerned, uh, again, as I said, uh, uh, th there are there are again a uh, lot of references about uh, uh, discrimination based on color or demonization based on color, uh, although it may not have had any uh, racialized uh, meanings back then. Uh, it definitely was probably present, uh, you know, uh, uh, in in those in those ancient texts. Uh, Coming to coming to the U.S., uh, certainly as as uh, both these eminent scholars have already pointed out, uh, both uh, uh, especially religion has uh, had a very important role to play in 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 the in the evolution of race, race as a category uh, and in the and in the emergence of racism, uh, and uh, and and it's it's actually fascinating because uh, what I find interesting as as uh, as a Dalit scholar is that uh, while these evangelical Protestant Christians were emphasizing or actually building race uh, based on religion. At the same time, these were, I wouldn't say not the same people, of course, but the representatives from the same churches were also speaking about or sort of speaking against caste as a religious institution in India. Uh, there is this brilliant book by Rupa Vishwanath. Uh, called the pariah problem. Uh, uh, pariah, as you know, is actually actually comes from the word pariah, which is actually a, a community of Dalits in South India. Uh, this is actually a side note, uh, but for those who are listening, uh, uh, please don't use the word pariah hereafter because it's it's actually the equivalent of the word you know the N word in the U.S. Uh, so to to use the word pariah is to actually demean a, a, a community of people. Uh, and I come from that community too. So, uh, so it is actually a very wounding and insulting word. Uh, and I think I, I see this often, you know, even the liberal American media and Western media, people use this word very, uh, very casually. But anyway, coming back to the pariah problem. So Vishwanath actually talks about how the Christian missionaries and evangelical missionaries were actually trying to eradicate caste as a religious institution, but they wanted to retain caste as a civil institution. Uh, in other words, religion is the problem, but you still have to keep caste because it's a very, very nice way of organizing one society. So it's actually very interesting how on one part, one side of the globe, this system of race is actually constructed based on religious beliefs. And yet at the same time, uh, uh, on the other side of the globe, you know, you have the caste system, you know, uh, the, the Indian caste system, but which needs to be uh, severed from its Hindu roots. But it still needs to be retained. At least most of them thought so. They thought the caste system was actually fine, except that they should stop believing in, Christ in, in Hindu scriptures. 
uh, and which is probably why, as we see, caste system is still thriving in India, uh, even though it does not necessarily uh, directly relate to the Hindu texts, uh, or at least uh, how it was interpreted later on. Uh, so, so the connection between religion and caste is is, is an ongoing issue uh, uh, and something that should not be sidelined. I think I'll stop there. Thank you, Dr. Reverend Samuel. Thank you, Dr. Reverend Jilks. Thank you, Dr. Reverend Douglas. I am in awe of your brilliance. Your students are lucky to be able to learn from you. The rest of us will continue to read your books and, and be able to um, revel in your, your brilliant thoughts there. Um, but thank you, thank you for your words. This has been fantastic. It has been an honor to be able to ask the three of you questions and revel in, in, the, in the wonderful intellectual work and, and beautiful, Spirits that, that you all have. Thank you for your brilliance. I will turn it back over to the Dr. Reverend Douglas to, to uh, close the evening. First of all, thank you, Hope Wabuki, for really engaging us in a uh, very, uh, uh, I should say, inspiring conversation because for me it was inspiring. Uh, to listen to my colleagues. And I hope for all of you who are listening that if you've not read Cass, that you will indeed take the journey into uh, Isabella Wilkerson's Cass. Because as you can see, it does not try really to answer questions. You won't leave with all of your questions answered. What you will do is leave with more questions to ask. And it will call you to dig deeper into this complex issue of race in America. I want to thank all of you for joining us on this evening. I want to invite you back uh, in April for our conversation with Catherine uh, Flowers on waste uh, and to invite you to continue to join us on the various uh, programs that we have, particularly on Facebook Live in which we engage in just conversations, tackling issues such as caste, class, race, uh, and inequality in America. Thank you, Dr. Samuel, and thank you, uh, Dr. Townsend-Jilks, and thank you all for joining us. Mm -hmm.